stealing your spot. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Put on the new self. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. I've never had fist bump between scripture readers before. <laughs> I like it. Would you pray with me? God, as I am given the opportunity to speak to your people, may my words be useful to your work. May you be with us and may your spirit lead us as we look at your text. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to ask, why do we tell the resurrection story? Why is it so central? Why is it something we keep coming back to? In fact, you know, every other week we observe the Lord's table. Some churches observe it every time they gather. What is so important about this resurrection story? Well, we tell it because we're confident that the story includes us. We can tell it because we believe it not only is true, not only did it happen, but a lot of things are true and a lot of things have happened. A lot of things have even shaped history and shaped culture, but we believe that we are part of the resurrection story. We are part of what happened and is still happening because of the resurrection story. We are somehow participants in Christ's death and his resurrection. So whatever else the Christian faith is, it is the proclamation of what God has done in Christ and what God has done in us. You see, this, this passage here, set your hearts on things above. Set your hearts on things above. That's very good church language, isn't it? When I previously worked with a bunch of people that um, church wasn't really a high point on their uh, weekly, monthly, annual calendar, when they found out that I also was a pastor and not just working at a company, they... <laughs> They'd get a little weird. Oh, oh, sorry I said that word. I, I, don't, I don't care. Oh, um, so like, are you like the priest? Okay, so you have a Catholic background, got it. Um, why are you married? Okay, still Catholic. Um, so like, and then when I was leaving the company to come and join you all here, they were like, so what do you do all day? And they kind of just imagine that the life of religion, the life of faith, is all just heavenly-minded. Put on the cossack, put on the robe, shave the head in the middle, and then start just humming all day or something. 
Set your mind on things above. What does that mean to set our minds on things above? It's too easy to become hyper-spiritualized, to only kind of reflect, to leave the temporal, leave the dirty, leave the broken and the profane, and just look at the beautiful and the natural and the godly. To just enter into the ethereal sphere of the spirit. I'm trying to throw out big words because that also seems to be part of it too. We need to get out there where we just are pie in the sky. As a matter of fact, I had a friend once who was a teacher, and we were, used to be in youth ministry together, and she became a literature teacher. And at that point in her life, she was feeling guilty because she's so focused on having to teach and manage the class and do all these things that she couldn't focus on the fact that God was good with her in that moment. She wanted to be able to be in this constant, ever-present, constant state of prayer and worship, but her work didn't allow her to. And I said, do you want your surgeon to be ever in the ethereal lands or to focus and worship through a good scalpel, a laser-focused scalpel? Eventually, she obviously worked through it. But there is sometimes this impression that we must always be ethereally connected into the spiritual world and that it's wholly other and is not connected and not related to the world among us. Some people even entrench in the the mindset of hide until Jesus returns. And therefore, their worship tends to be, hey, we have to go to church. We'll go as many times as the doors are open. And when we do, we're retreating into the sanctuary of God's presence because out there, God, what? Must not be. And then their, their sense of ministry is quick, send the bus out to gather people up to bring them in to the bunker while we wait for Jesus to return, retreating from the world into our holy huddles. Sometimes we just want to not be bummed out. We need to focus on the spiritual things. We need to focus on the good things. Don't focus on things that are downers. Immediately, I always have the voice of some like classic hippie in my head. Don't focus on the bummer. Don't watch the news. Don't engage in all these things. And sometimes we take that verse in Philippians, whatever's noble, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, think on these things. That's not what it's about. But if we just clip it out and let it stand on its own, we can start to manipulate it that way. So no, no, that's not what this passage. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's not talking about merely just detach from the temporal, the physical, and engage the eternal and the spiritual and the enlightened. That is not what it's meaning. For the community of faith, the starting and ending point of existence is Christ. Therefore, all things fall under and into his world. We didn't start, we don't start somewhere else and get to Christ somehow. We don't begin with Christ and get somewhere else. We don't mix the best things about Christ into Another foundation. You see, we must focus on this. Christ brings death, and then Christ brings life. We have died with Christ, and now we live with Christ. This is the basis for the meaning of our life. This is the basis for the patterns of how we then live. You see, in this verse, there's clear imperatives that were set to the believers. There's seek the things that are above, and set your mind on Christ. But right in the middle of the two imperatives, seek and set your minds, Paul identifies above. He explains it there. Look at the text. He says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
So when we're thinking of, of above, if we get caught on the word above, we start thinking about the ethereal, where the, the, the cherubs and harps are, are singing lovely melodies. And we're never-ending fountains of whatever beverage you like are just constantly flowing. But the above is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In doing so, Paul is drawing our attention to Christ's lordship. You see, Christ didn't just come, walk, die, and resurrect, and then go off and hang out. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's ruling. He's ruling his new kingdom that is already not yet. Jesus is the one who reigns as Lord of the universe, the one at the center of our seeking. He's none other than the crucified Jesus, the image of God, and he's the one who came to renew life, and he is ruling on behalf of new life. Things above refers to what comes from the true God, the Father and his beloved Son. You see, the point of this passage is that we should give our attention and worship to the true God instead of the pretenders to his throne. Now, what can we mean there? Do we have easy, easily accessed pretenders to the throne of God? We talked about it in our Sunday school class this morning that the heart is an ever-present ever and active generator of idols. Have you ever kind of had the, one of those moments where you realized that you, were, uh, you had something that you felt was more important than God? That you had an idol? You can usually find it because you don't look at it and think, oh, thank goodness I noticed this. Usually you can identify your idol because it's something you don't want to give up at all costs and you want to hide and make sure nobody even, even looks at it. Nobody can touch it. But setting our mind on things above sets us to look to the king who's ruling, who is Lord. This passage in no way suggests a Gnostic or falsely pious faith that leads us to disdain the physical world around us. And that is one thing that sometimes as Christians we are prone to do. We are prone to think this world is going to hell apparently in a handbasket. Have you ever heard people say that? I just want somebody to tell me. Somebody will be able to tell me why the handbasket helps and aids said journey to hell. But it's easy for us to create such a dichotomy that everything out there is just all so inherently broken. We just have to avoid it. Don't get it on you. It might stick. Quick, wash the clothes and it'll wash it out. Colossians suggests that the heaven and the earth are in the same situation. Christ came to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And he did so by making peace by the blood of his cross, chapter 120. And in his body and flesh by his death, 122. We can't get any more worldly than this, the physical, tangible, bodily bleeding of his death on the cross. That is the ultimate, complete marriage of the worlds of the heavenly and the earthly. He came down and he walked among us. He felt us. He hungered. He thirsted. He was beaten. He knew pain. He knew joy. He wept for friends that were lost. It amazed me that Jesus wept for a friend that was lost, that he was about to resurrect. I am not that mature. 
I would have been like giddy, like you guys are going to be so excited. This is going to be really cool. He was focused on the fact that death does not belong in his world. Death is ugly. Death is brokenness. At least the death of the people bearing the image of God. You see, Jesus came and physically tied us together in his body and flesh. Colossians is all about the multidimensional vision that comes from his resurrection. You see yourself as dead. You equally see yourself as alive. That's who we are in Christ, right? In Christ, you died with him. That's what it says in the passage. And your life is hidden. And in Christ, you will be made alive. Because when he returns again, you will be revealed with him in glory. In there is this protection that God provides over us. In the already, not yet. A lot of us have been a Christian and we think, okay, God, you said you came and changed and now you're living in my heart and the spirit is upon me and I don't see the world changing around me. What's Christ's answer to that? Hold on. Hold on. There's a day coming. Hold on. Stay steadfast as I am steadfast to you. Just wait a minute and you will see. You see this multidimensional vision that comes from us looking at the resurrection. We see ourselves dead and equally alive. We carry out the business of, of, of this earth in public, in broad daylight, and yet our life is also hidden in the secret space with Christ in God. When Christ is revealed in glory, we will also be revealed in the same glory despite our status as a sinner who's transferred into the kingdom out of darkness. You can see this kind of tug and war between these sides, can't you? Do you ever feel that in your own journey, in your own life, as we try to pray and we try to think, what are we doing today? God, where are you? I could really use some help. We have been buried and raised with Christ. As it says in, in chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. And you have come to fullness in him. Is this by your own doing? Is this because you finally achieved and unlocked that new level? No. He's telling you what he has done for you, to you, on behalf of you. You have, become, you have come to the fullness of him who is the head over every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by the removal of the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith, through the power of God who raised him from the dead. This is what we believe. This is what we anchor our lives around. And this is what we look to the heavens to see. And to renew. If we are raised with Christ, then we have died, and the old life in all of its ways are dead too. Now we're entering into our own duality of faith. In Jesus Christ, we are made alive and new. The old has gone, the new has come. 
So now we live in this tension-filled way of how we live today in this temporal every day in the light life of how do we put off the old and put on the new. Some days are better than others, aren't they? Some days we're in new clothes Jesus kind of moment. We're in new life Jesus kind of days. And other days we're just pretty content to just say, um, I'm good for today. Some days we're in a real bad attitude and we want to regress a little bit, right? Some days we don't want to deal with forgiving people. Some days we don't want to deal with accepting others. Some days we don't want to deal with just the pain and the brokenness that Jesus seems to call us to rush headlong into. If we are raised with Christ, then we have died to the old life and all of its ways. Therefore, we should spend no more time seeking after things that are under the lordship of other rulers of this earth, whether human rulers or human-built kingdoms that seek to rule our lives. No. We should invest into Christ's agendas. We should seek the things that are above, that are about reorienting our allegiances to the lordship of the crucified Christ, so that now... Christ's lordship might be known and experienced in this life now. So what does that mean? How do we do this? How do we set our hearts on things above and yet still live in the day-to-day life of this world? Well, what does it look like to have the old-new dichotomy? What does it look like to take off the old life and put on the new life? What does it matter about setting our hearts on things above? Well, let's start with a more cut-and-dry one. Take a moment, think of someone that you would probably classify as an enemy. An enemy isn't someone who you don't, you don't merely just dislike. An enemy is someone that you believe and know would seek to do you harm. Okay, hopefully you don't have any, but imagine you do. Okay, now we seek Above, we look to Jesus. Dear Lord Jesus, you are on their throne. You've changed things. You've brought about a new world, new kingdom. I've got an enemy here. What have I got to do? Oh, are there other options? <laughs> Who knows what we got to do? Do you know? Love them. How do you love them? Pray for them. And I don't mean the imprecatory ones. God, smite them really fast, preferably with me watching. You can pray that one, but it's probably not going to get answered. All right, Tuesday. Pray for them. Pray for their blessing. Pray Pray for their restoration. Pray for their livelihood. Pray for their goodness. Why do we do that? Why does Jesus, why is focusing on the new life above require us to take a look at our enemies and pray for them? Because now we have to look at them as Jesus sees them. Because we're trying to look at how Jesus sees us and we're trying to then turn around and reflect that to others. Because we were the enemy of Christ. And then he took us in and we became sons and daughters Think about that. Theologically, in the garden, we were image bearers walking in the garden at peace with God, fully realized to each other and no no harm. 
but we were creation walking with creator. And then in Christ, we are joint heirs and sons and daughters. That sounds like a promotion if you ask me, not merely a restoration. So with our enemies, the, the before is avoid them, do harm to them first, um, kind of wish them not well, but in Christ, after putting our hearts on things above, we love them, we pray for them, we seek their good, we seek their restoration, when we don't hold, get to hold it against them if they are drawn near to Christ, or even if they're not. And what happens in that, by the way, if, even if nothing seemingly good happens to them, we are changed. How? Because we're putting off the old, and we're now embodying the new. And when we embody the new of the risen Lord Jesus sitting on his throne, we are now going to experience a more Christ-like life, which is the goal of new life. All right, well, let's look at it again. How about neighbor? We did enemy. That's kind of drastic. We don't have that many of them. How about neighbor? What does the old life of neighbor look like? Hang out with the cool ones, right? We all have neighbors that we are drawn towards, and we all have neighbors that we're drawn less towards. Some of us are, are, have the personality that is drawn towards no neighbors. Some are drawn towards all. They're the ones that throw the block parties. What do we do with our neighbors? Help them, get involved, check in on them, get connected, develop that kind of web. Well, that's good. Why? Because it's good and it's healthy and it's what we all need. But what's real neighborly love going to do? We seek their good. We seek justice on their behalf, not just on our behalf. Well, that's easy because, you know what? If my neighbor has uh, a need for to borrow my lawnmower, that makes my lawn look better because he mowed his lawn. Right? So that's kind of good, right? So some sense neighborly love can be the symbiotic back and forth, right? What did Jesus say when he was asked, who's your neighbor, though? Oh, yeah, we have to go there. Our neighbor might even be the Samaritan. Our neighbor might be even the person on the side of the road who's broken down. Our neighbor might be that person who's in the next town over. You know, the town you, you drive around. That's the, why the Samaritan was chosen, by the way. We now just call them highways, right? I, somebody asked how my drive was. Since, uh, for those who don't know, I live up in uh, just north of Trenton, New Jersey, in Lawrenceville. And so I drive down, and I could take the Beltway around and save like about 10 minutes um, for $6. But my time is, uh, I'll spend the minutes instead of the dollars. And so I drive through the city, and I love driving through the city. But isn't that what we do? We just build Beltways around the places that are difficult. We build highways. Uh, if you'd go and drive through Camden, you don't even have to drive at street level on the highway. They've elevated the highway so that you are above it, so that you don't have to, you can, you can literally pretend Camden does not, does not exist. Does that sound like a Samaritan issue to you, to me? So now Jesus is going to call us to deal with our neighbor. All right, well, let's skip that one. Let's just get to money. The old way is money's good, get more. Money brings you security. Money brings you peace. Money brings you happiness. Money brings you power. 
money brings you more money because it really takes money to get money and then you can, and then it becomes snowballs of money and then it becomes that thing where you get to sit in a chair and I don't know who's above you but somebody's throwing down money it's really big I've just seen pictures of it it looks fun but what does Jesus tell us about money two things watch out it's a trap do not be caught up with it you cannot serve both God and mammon secondly use money as a tool be generous with it be crazy with it because then the world will see me through you because they won't understand why you're being so generous and giving it away why you're being so shrewd how do we learn that by setting our hearts on things above and not trying to get ourselves anchored in this perfect world and hang on to it forever how about the self if we can't if we've got to struggle to, if Jesus changes how we love our enemies, how we love our neighbors, how we deal with money, and how we, well, we might as well figure out how we're supposed to look at ourselves. Some of us really come into this day and we go have a pretty low version of ourselves. Some of us think that you're not worth any uh, time or energy. Some of us think that, you know, that, that God, go deal with someone else because, you know, there's people who are hurting more than I am. Yes, there are. But guess what? God knows you in your hurts today. God knows you in what your aches and pains are. God knows, knows you where your heart is aching or is cold and is, is shut off. This is my favorite part of every sermon is just to remind you, and it's never the initial part. It's not even the main part. It's the one that I just want you to know that God sees you today. God knows you by name, and he loves you today as you are, and he will not forsake you. And if you hear nothing else than that today, please hear that, that you are seen and known and loved by the creator of the universe, and he will not let you go. So don't think so lowly of yourself that you are not worth the attention of God or the neighbors that God's put in your life. Now let's go to the other side. Some of us think that we are a little more entitled than others. Either way, God wants you to know that you are a beloved child of his and that you have been dead through Christ but made alive and that our lives are now hidden with him. So let's look to him so that we can live in a uniquely different way. In chapter 2 of Colossians, he lays out, Paul, Apostle Paul lays out the, the, the practices, the religious practices that are thought to bring all this meaning but he says are empty. And then right after this passage, he talks about all the different sins, the old life ways that need to be put off and put on the new. The things like immorality, greed, anger, idolatry, rage, malice, lies. We need to replace those because they don't belong in Jesus' new life. And, we re and he replaces them with compassion and with kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness. Now, I don't know how you want to live because Theoretically, all the second list sounds really good, but for some reason, we still keep being drawn to the other. For some reason, we still keep being drawn that if we just do all the religious sacrifices and ordinances and practices, God's going to pour out his blessing because we've earned it. But we haven't. Because all we need is the risen Lord and be baptized into him through his death and through his resurrection and to be protected by him until the day that he reveals his life, and our life in his glory. So let us fix our eyes on a, and set our hearts on things above. Let us look to the risen Jesus and ask him today, how should I live King Jesus? You have a situation with a friend? How should I deal with this King Jesus? 
You got a situation at work. How do I work in this environment, King Jesus? How do I deal with this driver on the highway? How do I deal with this family member? How do I deal with my children, King Jesus? Because he's in the process of making all things new. And you have a place in that story. Amen? Father, I just pray that you would be with us as we look to you. We trust that you have come, walked among us, was crucified and rose again, and that you are sitting at the right hand of the Father. So, Lord, we're trying not to focus on the things that are old and decaying and broken, but we might focus on those things that are new and life-giving, both here and now and forevermore. Help us to walk in these ways. Fill us with your spirit and give us the courage to step out in faith and follow you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.